Hi, welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. The rapidly changing situation in Afghanistan. The chief medical officer, sorry, Ontario's chief medical officer, like the federal government, is making vaccines mandatory. But are they really? The election campaign is underway. What are we being promised? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ontario's COVID-19 numbers have dropped below 500 to 348 new cases. I'm not concerned. I'm fully vaccinated. Join the party. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. How do you keep your phone tucked in your pants that way? You know, I, I've got on track pants, and I put my phone in, and my pants fall down. You know, he, anyway, he's like tucking it in his six-pack there, uh, and it's, it stays. How does that How does that happen? Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. You can send us a note via the website. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. Uh, as you've seen, the images are just absolutely horrifying of people trying to get to uh, the airport in Kabul and only to find there is real uh, no seat on a plane out uh, and uh, literally clinging to the sides of a, of a U.S. military uh, jet uh, on its way down the runway. Uh, horrifying images that I'm sure uh, have made an impression around the world. Uh, the, the situation is rapidly changing in Afghanistan, as we know. Um, allied forces pulling out, and uh, many are saying that they did not think this would happen as quickly as it did. Lots of questions to be answered. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, uh, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. He is with us now. Reggie, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. Uh, first of all, Reggie, let's talk about these images and what we all saw the other day, uh, these horrifying images from the airport in Kabul. Uh, how is that going to make an impact around the world? Uh, well, I mean, look, this is uh, becoming a growing problem uh, politically, domestically and internationally for Joe Biden, because uh, ultimately this plan uh, appears to have gone off, uh, you know, under a failed uh, execution. Uh, and Joe Biden is facing criticism from Democrats. He's facing criticism from Republicans. Uh, and it's because, uh, you know, this 20 year allyship with the United States and Afghanistan kind of evaporating and ending so quickly and abruptly has experts curious to see if other leaders in the world are going to see uh, kind of what kind of shaky relationship the United States may now have with Afghanistan. It could potentially open up some kind of vacuum uh, to potentially be taken over by someone like Xi Jinping or Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin to say, well, look at the relationship between uh, the United States and Afghanistan is rocky. Maybe there's something we can do to step in. So there is a growing kind of political question as to what the United States intent here was, uh, considering just how badly this went for the administration. Uh, others, uh, other allies had pulled out a while ago, including Canada. Uh, many are saying that they anticipated this would happen or there would be some sort of resurgence, but not as quickly as it has happened. Uh, is there any explanation there? Is this an intelligence uh, mistake somewhere? That's a question that has been posed to the White House. It has been posed to Pentagon officials, uh, and it has gone unanswered. Uh, look, the United States uh, had a plan that was put in place by former President Donald Trump to withdraw American forces from the ground in Afghanistan by May 1st. That was extended by a few months uh, by President Biden. But the question remains, in those few months between the initial withdrawal and where we are right now, plus the time that uh, kind of lapsed between when the initial agreement was drafted, how was nothing put in place in order to either ensure that if the Taliban were going to come back into power, it would happen at a much slower rate? Uh, and you're right. Was there an intelligence failure that uh, kind of snowed the Biden administration into, you know, n not seeing what was actually happening in front of them? which raises a further question that if an intelligence failure happened while U.S. forces were on the ground, what's going to happen now going forward to either uh, America itself or American interests if they don't have a presence in that country anymore? Uh, 
Uh, a NATO official uh, saying on on uh, the news in the last 24 hours that uh, that Afghanistan failed here after 20 years of training, uh, 20 years of trying to fortify uh, this force, that they just seem to walk away. And it appears that all of that equipment and such has now gone into the hands of the Taliban. What about NATO? Uh, what about what, what the NATO officials have to say in the forces in Afghanistan? It appears the leaders have already fled. Um, are you surprised they collapsed so quickly? I think that it, that kind of raises further questions as to what the United States was and wasn't paying attention to over the last 20 years and whether or not we were in a situation of the Afghan forces being fully reliant and dependent on U.S. guidance uh, and whether or not they were actually going to be capable of leading that country going forward when the United States withdrew. You heard the president say just yesterday that this was not going to be something that was everlasting, that Afghanistan was going to have to be able to pick up the pieces and carry the baton or carry the torch after the U.S. was gone. But whether or not the U.S. actually knew if they could do that, we haven't been given any kind of idea on that. Uh, And given the fact that the Taliban was able to move in so quickly and this time around with very little force, uh, it does raise questions to whether or not maybe the Taliban potentially was was uh, making backdoor maneuvers in some of these key provinces and capital cities around the country in the months leading up to this withdrawal, which potentially, uh, you know, got in the way of Afghan forces or or just allowed them to be moved out of the way much more quickly because the U.S. was more focused on its withdrawal as opposed to what was happening around. These are questions that are not being answered by the administration. Uh, How about an update on the situation at the airport in Kabul? I understand that U.S. forces have now secured that as opposed to what we saw yesterday. What's the plan moving forward to get people out? How safe is that airport? So the airport, according to uh, military officials, has been secured and we're not seeing that kind of bum rush of civilians that we saw yesterday where they were clinging to uh, military transport planes that were trying to take off from the tarmac. Pentagon officials today said that by the end of the day, there would be another 4,000 or roughly 4,000 U.S. troops on the ground in Kabul to assist with evacuations. They're also intending to get at least one uh, evacuation flight per hour out of the country uh, within the next 24 hours, which could kind of allow for upwards of 9,000 people to be taken out of the country uh, uh, over X number of hours as these flights uh, are able to move forward. And we saw the pictures over the last 24 hours of, you know, of a U.S. military transport plane with six or 700 people inside. And it shows yeah. uh, just how dire the situation is, how many people need to be evacuated from that country. But while the focus is on Kabul right now, Scott, uh, there are questions to the uh, to the interpreters and to the government, uh, to the uh, Afghan contractors who worked with the U.S. military uh, and, and other militaries uh, that are not in Kabul, that don't have access to the airport. What does that mean for their futures going forward? The Taliban has said that they will give them amnesty. Is the Taliban to be uh, trusted on that? But what is the United States doing to ensure that people outside of uh, airport access are going to be able to be brought into the United States or a third country? Again, questions that haven't been answered. Uh, yeah, where are all these people going? Well, some of these people right now are going uh, to to uh, to Doha, to Qatar. Uh, there are visa processes that are still uh, uh, underway to try and get these, uh, these these contractors and these interpreters onto American soil. But, Scott, again, that raises more questions that the White House and the Pentagon are pushing back on, saying that this is potentially a State Department issue. The United States understood that they had a deadline that was coming very quickly towards the end of August to get their troops out of there. Uh, Why were visa services not offered to these contractors and why was uh, a more concerted effort not made to move these these contractors and uh, and interpreters into an area that would make them easily able to leave? Uh, in the months that that led up to where we are right now, this 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 is why people are are kind of lambasting and criticizing President Biden for this uh, for this failed exit plan because it appears that you know pieces A, B, and C might have been on paper, but no lines where they're connecting them. Uh, how many uh, troops are there now? U.S. troops. You were talking about more coming in towards the airport to 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 fortify the situation there. Are those brought in, or are they just redirected from other parts of the country? These are going to be brought in because remember, under former President Trump, he withdrew the number of U.S. troops on the ground yeah. in Afghanistan to around twenty five hundred. We're now looking at having roughly between three and four thousand, possibly a few more than that, on the ground. So these are going to be troops that are brought into Afghanistan 
to assist with an evacuation effort. There is nothing that has been kind of uh, uh, discussed in any kind of limited scope when it comes to any kind of battle. And that is because uh, the Taliban have said that they intend to move forward without any kind of hostile nature. Uh, a Taliban leader has just gave a news conference not all that long ago saying that they intend to try and call a truce, uh, you know, with internal struggles and with external relations. You know, it, it's, it's still to be seen if anybody's actually going to uh, recognize the Taliban uh, as a legitimate government here. Uh, but for the U.S., they are simply bringing troops in to try and bring people home, uh, understanding that they are in the waning weeks now uh, of what is uh, what is supposed to be a, a boots on the ground situation. So many have asked, is this a new Taliban? I mean, they appear to be looking for more credibility. They've already declared that the the aggression is over. Uh, There's reports that they've asked women to come and join the cause, uh, this sort of thing. I mean, do you believe any of this? Uh, how, How do we interpret this? I think it has to be a wait and see situation. I mean, if you talk to to people that are on the ground, we've spoken with people on the ground uh, in Kabul and in Kandahar, and they say that there is a uh, there is kind of a lacking avenue for trust when it comes to the residents uh, of Afghanistan and the Taliban because of how they entered force uh, in 1996, because of how they carried themselves through uh, to the early 2000s. Uh, and there is a fear that, well, the Taliban are saying that they are welcoming women into their government, that they are welcoming women to continue on living their lives freely. The Taliban also live under uh, a very restrictive Islamic law that really forbids kind of uh, uh, an everyday life for women. We've already seen in Kabul uh, beauty salons have been painted over. Uh, images of women in windows have been covered up. Women are being told that they are going to have to go back under uh, a niqab, which is something that that a generation of Afghan women have not been uh, forced to live like. So I think it is going to be seen whether or not this is a new Taliban, but the Taliban is also going to have to be under a recognition that for the last 20 years, there is a new generation of Afghan people who are educated, educated under a, a westernized system that could potentially give some resistance. What is the role of the allies here, Reggie, or is it all the U.S. uh, doing at this point? Well, I mean, look, when the United States was on the ground in Afghanistan, they had the backing uh, of NATO. They had uh, more than just the United States uh, offering assistance to Afghanistan. Uh, With with the United States out, uh, with the Taliban now saying that this is an emancipated and independent nation that they have kicked out, uh, Westerners and they have kicked out foreigners, it's unclear uh, what, what U.S. alliances are going to exist, what NATO alliances are going to exist, what alliances are going to exist outside uh, of what the Taliban can get on their side. And that is where the fear lies in that if the United States is gone, if you know one of the poorest countries on earth tries to move forward, who props it up? Does Russia prop it up? Does China prop it up? Does somebody in the Middle East who's potentially an adversary uh, to the United States begin to prop up Afghanistan and create uh, uh, diplomatic or or, or security problems going forward? These are questions that have gone unanswered and are really starting to ring louder uh, in the wake of this exit plan that appeared to have no plan with it. Uh, it appears China's stance on this is that they're happy for the Taliban that they now have control uh, over their country again. So there, there you go. Uh, does the Taliban now sit back and watch this go on at the airport? Do they sit back and watch those troops get people out? And 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 do they just do, do they just let people go out? Do they kick them out? Do they try to keep them in? Uh, what is their position? Are they, cause it seems like there's going to be a, a mass exodus for the next little while anyway. Well, I mean, we'll have to wait to see what border control looks like uh, in Afghanistan. The Taliban had closed off borders when they were in control right now. They have tried to declare that there will be some kind of amnesty and that they're not going to get in the way of people living their lives. But as uh, as these flights continue out of Afghanistan, the Taliban so far has not made any kind of hostile threat at the airport. So people are leaving uh, as they are able to. Commercial flights are, are coming in and out. Uh, of the main airport. So again, it's a wait and see situation. Your comment about China right before that uh, is something that is also being taken uh, uh, by notice around the world, notably by uh, uh, members uh, of, of the administration in China by by raising questions to if the United States is not going to put up a fight as they watch the Taliban retake Afghanistan, what does that say about a potential relationship when it comes to Taiwan? 
do does China think that America will just kind of lay down uh, and let China take over in an event that that could happen? These are mm. more kind of diplomatic and security questions that are being raised in the wake of this exit. Wow, good point. Reggie Giacchini with us, uh, Washington reporter, correspondent, producer for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Here's the commentary. We have heard over the last few weeks of the fall of Afghanistan as Taliban terrorists fill the vacuum left by leaving allied forces that have been keeping some sort of civility for the last 20 years. You can debate the politics that has got us to where we are and what the future holds after 20 years of suppression. But all of that is trumped when the world watches images of people falling from the skies after trying to cling to a military cargo jet filled to the brim with evacuees. The images of those running for their lives to make it to the airport only to find no seats available reminded us of what it must have been like for those scrambling to board a lifeboat in the last moments of the Titanic. Airline infrastructure collapsing over the weight of those trying to get on board while others stand on the roof of the plane hoping to secure a seat before it makes a dash for the runway, dodging citizens as if they were a flock of birds. Some thinking they had a better chance of survival riding on the wing of a plane than staying back and dealing with the Taliban. That should not sit well with the rest of the world. I'm Scott Thompson. It's been like two days. Uh, I don't have uh, contact with my older brother back in Afghanistan. And even I don't know, are they alive or died? So it's a very bad situation back in there in Afghanistan. So now we are watching from the social media. It's very bad in Taliban control all the country. So it's very hard for me to hear from them. Uh, I'm trying to uh, get his contact and trying to uh, call different people. I Like, uh, do, you, do you know where's... Uh, my brother, where's my, the rest of my family back in there? So it's very, I'm concerning about them. That is a uh, former interpreter uh, from Afghanistan uh, who was on speaking with, speaking with uh, Alex Pearson last night on her show and how concerned he is with family and friends and such that are uh, back in Afghanistan. We certainly saw the footage uh, yesterday, the horrifying images of, of just how desperate it is there. Uh, as people flooded the uh, airport in Kabul and and were literally clinging to 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 a military plane as it as it took off, and uh, we certainly uh, found out how uh, what happened there and 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 just how the, the desperation the, the the horrifying images that we saw um, the rest of the world has to be watching and 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 just shaking their head and wondering where we go from here uh when it comes to afghanistan uh obviously uh u.s troops the final allies to get out many thought the afghan army after 40 years of training and fortification could uh withstand this sort of pressure but it seems that uh for whatever reasons uh in many cases just uh laid down the arms and 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 took off sort of speak uh and here we have uh, images of the taliban uh you know terrorize, terrorizing uh, towns in the equipment that was left behind where do we go from here let's bring in stephen sademan norman patterson school of international affairs carleton university and is with us now stephen thank you for the time i hope you're well uh doing as well as i can given what's going on around the world Talk about these images that we all saw yesterday. What kind of impact does that have around the world? What does it do for the discussion? Endings are never easy. And the problem, of course, is that this thing ended faster than people expected. I guess the thing to think about is, is it better to have a few thousand people at the airport and some people, you know, doing desperate things, with the, you know, trying to climb on these planes or having a, a bloody... Battle battles in, in in Kabul. I mean, people are predicting this to this civil war to drag out, and it ended mostly pretty abruptly. I mean, it's going to go on. Uh, this is not the end of violence in Afghanistan, but uh, this could it could be much worse. Uh, if people look back to what happened uh, in the battles of the, of the civil wars of the 1990s, but it's depressing, it's saddening, it's frustrating, it's angering that you know the United States did not prepare. Other ways to get people out of the country. Maybe they should have kept the Bagram airfield open longer and use that as a way to evacuate people. But this all happened a lot faster than people expected. 
Uh, President Biden saying that, that it obviously happened a lot faster. Um, how does that happen? Again, um, you know, we, it's not like we, it, this is the first rodeo. We've been there for 20 years, or the U.S. had been. Uh, is this an intelligence failure? They didn't realize how mobilized the Taliban uh, already were. And, and again, it, it's 20 years of training here that just all seem to be for naught. Well, the training wasn't about how to get the politicians to provide money to the troops and ammunition and all the Mm. rest. I mean, the failure of the Afghan troops this spring was of of two things. One was they weren't getting the support from the Afghan politicians that they should have been getting, but it's one thing to train a military. It's another thing to provide logistics and all the rest of it. And the second thing is is that when Trump signed the deal last year, that sort of put the writing on the wall that this thing wasn't going to last for much longer, and Biden reinforced that writing on the wall when he came into power. And so why why would you fight? And so the uh, you know to be the last person fighting for your government when the government itself is not all that interested in fighting for itself. And so the reason why this is surprising because you know we knew understand we we didn't know about the the big intelligence failures we didn't know that the, Af- the Taliban had signed deals or not signed but made deals with all kinds of actors in the country that allowed the the military to turn over the weapons pretty quickly. That was a very dynamic process. People learned from what happened the day before, the day before that. And so it was increasingly the, the folks in the Afghan National Army who realized, uh, you know, if I don't make this deal, I'm going to die, and then somebody else will make the deal that will leave me hanging. So I, I think overall uh, it was normal to be surprised by this. I don't, th- But I think that there could have been better preparation for the end game, even though it happened much faster. So that's where the failure lies in that there weren't more, uh, there wasn't more process or or uh, or plans put in place to deal with this um, sudden demand to leave the country. I, or you know, we were hearing that that many didn't want to, didn't want the help. Uh, but how, how do you how do you balance all this? Well, I think that you know it's, it's easy for the Canadians to blame the Americans, but Canada yeah. too should have been working on I. You know, not just the past month or past couple months, but they should have been spending the past, you know, ever ever since Trump made that deal last year, there should have been an effort to identify those folks who wanted to pull out and start pulling them out. The challenge the Biden administration raised yesterday was, well, once you start doing that, then you start creating the collapse. And so that is a trade-off. But for Canada, Canada was out. And so at, that, at this point in time, they, they should have been working on how to get people out, um, minimizing the paperwork, minimizing how much efforts they would have to do that were heroic. I mean, we were expecting people to access the Internet and upload documents and do all kinds of stuff, and it might have been that it made sense to set up uh, a place, whether that's Kuwait, Dubai, you know, somewhere uh, between Canada and and Afghanistan, or maybe even in in Canada, where we could bring people in and then vet them, um, you know, knowing that we had, you know, if we took our time with it a little bit here about the paperwork rather than there, we might have been able to get more people out. Um, it's uh, not over yet. They're still the airport's still open, and they're still taking people out. So there's still a possibility to get some more people out. In the end, uh, who will be left there? Who does not want to leave? How many are fleeing? Uh, those are good questions. I think a lot of people have family there that they want to leave behind. Uh, some people are true believers. Some people don't think that they're going to be targets. Uh, I mean, it's hard to leave a country, and it's hard to leave a country when you don't know where you're going. So uh, most people will stay, and then most people have to deal with the Taliban as it exists. What's interesting right now is the Taliban isn't really pushing on this perimeter at the airport, and or at least the last time I checked, uh, you know, things change from minute to minute. But it may be that the Taliban is tolerating uh, the effort to get out people who are hostile to the Taliban. So maybe that that allow this bubble at the airport to exist for longer, and maybe allow thousands to escape, but it's not going to allow millions to escape. Uh, and where do they go? Because, again, we, we saw the, the hor- hor- uh, horrific images at the airport yesterday, and all of those people crammed on the plane. We're seeing like over 600, I believe, at this point. Um, where do they end up? How do they get processed? Well, uh, Canada has already flown Afghans into, into Toronto. Uh, I presume that, that the government will set up facilities, maybe at military bases, to, to you know, feed them, uh, talk to them, you know, make sure they got their documents, and then try to coordinate with civil society to find places for them to go. I mean, that's, that's the way it worked when we brought people over from Syria, and that's, the, I think, the way it's working now.
So uh, the Tal- many are asking, is the Taliban back? Is this uh, the Taliban 2.0? Um, and, and where do we go from here? Are we heading you know, back to where we were 20 years ago? Or is this a new Taliban? There's, you know, they've, they've declared that, uh, well, as I've said, the, the, the war is over for them. And, and now they're going to reestablish and encouraging women, women to be a part of all of this. What do you make of that? I find that all hard to believe. Uh, being hostile women is, is intrinsic to their, their ideology, to, to their particular view of their religion. Uh, so, but it's interesting that they're making those steps. They didn't make those steps, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, 20, 25 years ago when they came to power. So it, it's it's striking. But uh, I'm not sure they're going to change their stripes anytime soon, and nobody can really count on it. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, they, they, they may have learned some lessons from how brutal they were before. It is a different generation of leaders because a lot of the leaders of the organization got killed over the course of the past 20 years. But it's too soon to say, and it'd be really silly to speculate. On that point, Stephen, many have said that there's been 20 years of growth here, that, that that'll be difficult to turn back because there is a generation that won't just lay down for this. Um, is there validity in that? Is it a different, is it a different situation now? Well, if you take a look at the picture of, pictures of, of Kabul in the 1970s, they look pretty modern, and then uh, 20 years of war and you know five or seven years of uh, Taliban rule made a big difference on that. So I'm not going to be wildly optimistic that to think that that the progress that was made and the changes that were made can't be wiped out by uh, a very brutal regime. So it's going to be on the Taliban to persuade people not through their words but through their deeds over the next months and years that they are a different version of themselves. So how do you recognize, I mean, are other countries supposed to recognize them as, as a legitimate government now? Uh, does this just become a land of, of nowhere again? Or is do you see, see things possibly moving forward for them? And by that, I mean at least a decrease in the violence. We'll see. I mean, the, the reality of the past month or two is not that they gained control of the country. They just increasingly denied control of the country to the government. So it depends. We have uh, statements by some of the leaders of the former government saying that they're going to continue to fight, and we'll see how much uh, they can bring to that fight. But given that, that the Taliban owned the capital, and that has been traditionally been the way people have um, recognized and dealt with countries is they own the capital, even if they don't own a lot of the territory, uh, that they're treated as, as the government. And we found in our relations with Iran that when we don't have an embassy, when we don't have relations with them, that that makes things awkward when there's a crisis, like when a plane is shot down. So countries will certainly end up treating the Taliban as the government of Afghanistan. There are plenty of governments around the world that are in the neighborhood of of being as abhorrent, uh, but people have diplomatic relations with them, whether that's North Korea, which has limited diplomatic relations, or Saudi Arabia, which has a lot of policies that are very much similar to what the Taliban have, have been advocating. Yet we have a relationship with Saudi Arabia. We sell arms to Saudi Arabia. So um, I think, yes, that it depends if the Taliban act like a normal country, they'll be treated like a normal country. If they don't act like a normal country, then maybe not. Uh, the U.S. sending troops back in in order to control this exodus uh, at the airport, um, how long do they stay? Uh, and is, once that mission is over, is that it? They're out. Yeah, there, there's no way they're staying beyond the evacuation. I mean, that, that's what the whole point of this endeavor is, and I, the Biden administration is not going back on that. They've not only believe in it, but they also put a whole lot of political capital into into leaving. So before, you know, they, they, there's no way they can then stay now after after going through this entire mess of the past couple of weeks. Uh, so they'll leave when when they either there's nobody left to evacuate, or that when the evacuation is no longer sustainable, they'll leave. And whether that's a day, a week, a month, it kind of depends on what. The Taliban are willing to uh, let happen. If they start firing on the airport, uh, then while the the Marines and the the American Army folks who are there can can respond in kind, it will make it very hard for planes to land and pick up people. And so, uh, it really depends on on how long the Taliban are willing to go along with this. And so far, they've been willing to go along. Uh, what? How is the? What is the world view of this? You were talking about Russia, China. Obviously, they're looking at this as an opportunity. What about the allies? How are they viewing this? And and you know, especially after being there for twenty years. 
Well, first of all, few people have been there for 20 years. Uh, a lot, NATO left in 2014. Right. The residual force for training. Everybody decided this was that they had spent enough blood and treasure seven years ago. Uh, so no, not too many people could get high and mighty about you know staying longer than the Americans. Um, what you know, people are arguing now, well, if the Americans aren't going to be faithful to this ally, they're not going to be faithful to other allies. And, and there's two ways to look at this. One is they spent 20 years of blood and treasure in a place they don't care about. And so that means that they might actually spend a lot of money and treasure and people on places they do care about. The second way is to think about it is that people understand that this is a different place than themselves, that, that Afghanistan is not Germany, Afghanistan is not uh, Japan, mm-hmm. Afghanistan is not Canada, and they're not going to generalize from this. Now, if you're someplace else that the United, you were hoping the United States to intervene in to, to deal with an insurgency, then you go, well, the United States are out of that business for a while. But in terms of our allies, they're going to look at this, and, and the biggest question is not so much about being loyal to the Afghans. It's going to be about messing up the ending and what that says about American uh, competence, not about American resolve. Uh, we remember all of this way back when, 9-11. Um, should we be fearful of anything of that nature? Should, should we wor- be worried that with not uh, being watched that this, uh, this group, this Taliban, could return to exactly what there was before? That's a really good question, and we don't really know, because it may be the Taliban learned the lesson that if they host a group like al-Qaeda, that they may face 20 years in the wilderness, or they may go, well, you know, hey, the Americans aren't going to come back, we can do what we want. So it's really hard to figure out what they're going to do next. But we've learned two things from the past 20 years. One is the United States has the power and capability to take out terrorist training camps, whether they are there or not. You know, that is whether the Americans are there or not. And so if the Taliban open up their country to terrorist training camps, the United States can drop bombs on them all they want and, and be very accurate about it. So it's going to be hard to turn Afghanistan into a terrorist training ground. What about China? China? The, ter- the terrorists have also learned that they don't need Afghanistan to do terrorism. ISIS, uh, while it had some territory for some time, has turned to the Internet and, and you try to inspire people within the United States, within Canada, within Europe, to engage in low-level terrorism. So I, I don't... I don't. I can't say that there's not going to be another 9/11, but there's going to be terrorism. But to be frank, the greatest threat uh, of terrorism in Canada are far-right white people. Uh, they're the ones who are killing Canadians. Uh, China's view of this and uh, America's withdrawal—they uh, supported the Taliban. How significant is this? Does this uh, offer I them say some? They su- the Taliban. Um, Russia supported the Taliban. Pakistan supported the Taliban. I'm not sure the Chinese did. Uh, from what I've read, they're they're not uh, they're not condemning uh, the Taliban for taking over the territory that they thought was originally theirs. Is that yeah, accurate? they're not they're not crying in their soup about it. The Chinese are probably happy that we're being embarrassed. But uh, does they, this give the them any have reason? Their own Islamic fundamentalist problems. I mean, their whole uh, incredibly oppressive war against the Uyghurs. Uh, Uyghurs in, in Western China is, uh, is about a group that is Muslim, and so I'm not sure there's going to be a whole lot of a strong basis for good relations. They can find ways to get around it. They can try to show, you know, have trains that go through Afghanistan. They can try to get rare earth metals out of Afghanistan, but they're going to find Afghanistan to be a difficult place to, to work with. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not fussed about, about the Chinese taking advantage of this in terms of somehow having a great new ally they already, the Chinese already have an alliance with Pakistan, so they they already have their what they need in that part of the world. Moving forward in the short term, what do you think we can expect to see in Afghanistan? A lot of uncertainty. Uh, we don't know what the Taliban are going to do. We don't know what uh, people who we've left behind are going to do if they fight the Taliban, if they flee, if they, uh, you know, what their behavior is going to be. It's it's really uncertain and. Uh, you know, Pakistan right now is very happy about what happened. They're declaring victory because this is what they've wanted all along. But I think the Pakistanis are going to be surprised to find that suddenly they have a lot less leverage over the United States now that the United States no longer needs uh, Pakistan for its war in Afghanistan. Hmm. Uh, Stephen Sademan so. with us, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Stephen, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I am issuing a directive to require COVID-19 immunization policies in hospitals, home and community service providers, and ambulance services.
Uh, that is Dr. Uh, Kieran Moore, the Ontario Chief Medical Officer, uh, saying that as of uh, September, uh, policies need to be in place for hospitals, healthcare, uh, paramedics, long-term care, and also education. Uh, proof of fully vaccinate, uh, full vaccination is mandatory, or you can provide documentation medically, uh, medical documentation as to why you cannot be vaccinated, go through education sessions, why you should be vaccinated. And if you still choose not to be vaccinated, uh, we'll have to undergo regular uh, testing. Very similar to what the federal government has announced, although they have not said what they will do with employees who refuse to be vaccinated at this point. Uh, but again, at the end of the day, uh, everybody's requiring proof of vaccination or some sort of policy trying to get everyone vaccinated. But if you are not, you're going to have to explain uh, why. So it is mandatory, but it's not really mandatory. Uh, also went on to say third dose uh, available for the most vulnerable. That includes long-term care. And they're pausing on the roadmap to reopen uh, beyond step three of where we are now. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert and advisor, uh, medical doctor, and of course uh, knows a lot about health systems and policy and is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Your thoughts on what we heard from uh, uh, Ontario's chief medical officer just moments ago. It's uh, not very surprising, Scott. We we knew this was going to happen. We've been alerting the you know the public about the Delta variant and the uh, the high rate of infectious uh, diseases that are happening due to Delta variant. So I think that the remarks are very much aligned with what the experts have been calling for, which is that you know not lifting off all the provincial restrictions that are currently in place. But more specifically, as the fall is uh, around the corner, I know nobody wants to hear that. We want to stay in the summer spirit, but. Fall is around the corner where people are going to be more indoors and schools are reopening. There is a concern with the rise in numbers because of Delta variant that if measures are not put into place now and, and we don't prepare ourselves, we might be back uh, in a much more dire situation uh, than we are right now. Uh, lots of chatter, especially now that there's been the announcements of a federal election in around the word mandatory. And we're mm-hmm. hearing it used many, many ways. Uh, what we've just heard from uh, Dr. Moore, the Ontario Chief Medical Officer, uh, both education and health care uh, have to have some sort of policy in place with proof of full vaccination. So basically sounding like proof of, of full vaccination is mandatory. However, uh, there is that window uh, for those that uh, medically cannot get it, uh, have to show documentation why, go through an education session and regular uh, uh, testing on an ongoing basis. Um, it, will that be the norm moving forward, you think? Because it seems, although politicians are trying to parch all this, they're basically all saying the same thing. And with yeah, 82% uh, vaccinated, how much farther can we get? Well, I think there's a, this is the battle between science and, and, and sort of constitutional rights. So the government, the Ontario government, is, doesn't want to infringe on people's constitutional right of not of mandating them to get vaccinated. And so they're trying to find a fine balance between that, you know, forceful mandate, mandating people to take the vaccine, but at the same way, protecting population health. And so the right for you not to get vaccinated is there. However, uh, you know, the, in, in the spirit of protecting others around you, whether that is patients or students, uh, it is the universities, hospitals, healthcare facilities, are now mandating or putting forward policies to mandate people to have vaccination. What does that mean? It means that if you're not vaccinated, you're going to be undergoing many rapid antigen testing, which are uncomfortable. uh, And I think they're meant to serve the point, which is that get vaccinated. Um, You know, it's almost saying you should get vaccinated, but if you don't, here's what the punishment will be, in other other words. And, and, And punishment maybe is an extreme word, but the point here is that it's very strong, positive reinforcement for people who are not getting vaccinated to get vaccinated, especially that this choice of not getting vaccinated has an impact on others around them. Uh, so we're seeing in Ontario uh, over 81% of the population with one dose, over 73% with the second. Obviously, we've chatted before about what a great uptake this is. If you consider, and again, these are just my numbers, Ahmad, so I don't even know how close I am, but let's just assume 5% are anti-vaxxers and there's nothing you're going to say 
uh, or anybody's going to say to convince them otherwise. Say another 5% who, for some medical reason, are unable to do that. That takes us to 90%. Are we, are we overanalyzing getting the last sort of 5% of the population vaccinated? You bring up an excellent point, Scott. It's, we have actually incredible rates of vaccination. So overall, yeah. I will say that we're doing very, very well. I mean, compared to the rest of the world, we're in the lead. So we are doing exceptionally well. That's important to say. The question so much now is not about, you know, getting that last 5% people vaccinated. The question is those variants are becoming more dangerous. So now we're facing with the Delta variant. We don't know what's next. And so the question now becomes, from a health policy perspective, is, how do we actually ensure that we still have mechanisms in place to protect us in the future? One of those is we need to mandate that everybody has the vaccine. Great. What else can we do? Well, if it's a hospital, it's a school setting, let's make sure the ventilation is up to standard and it can handle you know, the virus and its impact on, on, on our respiratory system. Three, we need to be looking at booster shots. Are they necessary? If so, when and how should we be administering them? And fourth, which the government already talked about today, is this idea of 12-year-olds being vaccinated. Right now, when they turn 12, they can get vaccinated. We're following what British Columbia has done and has shown not to have any associated effects. The point I'm trying to make here, Scott, to your question is that it's only one element to make sure as many people are vaccinated as possible. We need to continue that, that, that you know, battle, making sure even the 5% get vaccinated. But while we do that, we also need to be making sure that other mechanisms are in place because although we're only dealing now with Delta variant, we don't know what the next variant might look like. And so the mechanisms to protect us need to be in place. Uh, obviously, as you said, uh, doctor, the vast majority of Ontarians have already been vaccinated. Uh, sort of the unknown here, especially with going back to school, is those that are under 12, for obvious reasons, they're, they're not vaccinated yet. Do we know anything more on when that would change, when we will see approval there? For example, by Christmas, will we start seeing the lineups for kids to get vaccinated under 12? I actually think it will be much sooner than Christmas. The data is coming out uh, as we speak on some preliminary studies that are happening on people under the age of 12. And so I think the government will be reviewing that very closely because, again, you know, I've said this from day one of the pandemic. We need to stop thinking about the pandemic as something that will happen and then it will go away forever. We need to think about how do we live in a, in a world where pandemics are on the rise. So it could be COVID-19 now. It could be something else within a year. So our, our, the real question here becomes is that can we develop vaccines that are safe for children? Can we make sure that our schools, uh, ventilation systems, and social distancing practices can be put into place? How can we adapt our daily living to accommodate for the rise of pandemics and other crises that might come our way? You know, people that will thrive and succeed in the response to the pandemic are ones who actually are able to adapt successfully. People that just assume that it's a phase and it's over will struggle and we're seeing that uh, across the world actually so uh once we do get approval for those under 12 do you think the uptake will be uh proportionally just as quick as it has been for all the other age groups or do you think there'll be more hesitancy because they are younger a great question. I think that if we look at the evidence, we see that, you know, a younger generation tends to be more aligning themselves with what uh, educational messages they're getting. And this is why I think it's going to become so important that parents, teachers, people that serve uh, an educationary role in children's lives play an integral part in educating the kids about the importance of getting the vaccine. Uh, because what we are afraid of is that the younger generation under the age of 12 might think that they don't need to get the vaccine because the pandemic is over or that it might not affect them as much. And so it's going to be very, very important to raise that awareness among that population once the time comes that they're eligible to get the vaccine. Uh, once we do reach that point um, and, and we do see even the kids start to get vaccinated, what are the chances of those who have been fully vaccinated uh, testing positive. I, I shouldn't say getting sick because I think there's two different things here. I, I mean, we've heard the numbers that uh, the majority of the people that are getting sick are those that are either only partially or or not vaccinated. But we still are seeing numbers of some who have been fully vaccinated coming down with this. Uh, are they just testing positive or are they getting sick? Well, I mean, the evidence is showing us both cases. So people who have been double vaccinated 
can still get COVID-19 and can exhibit symptoms or other words, get sick. Uh, but, however, the evidence is also very, very clear that if you are double vaccinated, even if you do get COVID-19 and even if, which means that you get you test positive for it and you develop symptoms for the virus, your symptoms are not as severe as somebody who's unvaccinated. You're less likely to die or end up in an ICU when you're double vaccinated. And so, you know, that is very clear from the evidence. The question becomes now about the variants. They're, they're presenting themselves that are a lot more transmissible. They're a lot more infectious. Their symptoms can be a lot more severe than the regular sort of, you want to think about it, COVID-19 virus. And so that, I think, is what's prompting companies like Pfizer and others and research entities across the world to really try to now look at booster shots. Do we really need a booster shot? If so, what are the associated risks that are associated with them? And, and do they provide enough protection to justify the need for a booster shot? Uh, what are you expecting to see this September, Ahmad? What, what, any, I mean, you know, obviously you can't predict everything here with this global pandemic, but, but what can we assume? What we can assume is that when people return to more indoor lifestyle living, uh, where they're mostly indoors because the weather changes with students coming back and kids coming back to school, we're going to see a rise in the numbers. Uh, that is expected. Now, how big that rise is difficult to tell at this point. I think it's very difficult to project that how much of a rise it will be. Uh, I think the government's measures today and announcement signifies and signals that everybody's on board with the same idea that we are expecting a rise in numbers and therefore we need to be prepared. Uh, I think it's very telling that the government is not lifting the reopening stages that we're staying where we are because they're anticipating that rise in numbers. And the last thing they want to do is have people, you know, go to no restrictions at all to back to restrictions. I think they're trying to set the expectation of what is about to happen in the fall. Dr. Ahmad Khalid with us, health policy expert and advisor. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's say hi to Tim Powers, uh, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, and is with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. And sitting in St. John's, and you you would probably believe this, from my mother's home where I'm sitting a few blocks, well, a few houses away is Alan Doyle. So I'll tell him you, you've gotten some money for the rights to the song that you just played. Very, well done, very Scott. cool. He is getting his, his, uh, his what is it, ASCAP payment every, uh, every time you come on. So that's good news for him. We're just trying well, to support you. Well, you know, you we Newfoundlanders like kickbacks, Scott. So that's a good one there. Thank you. <laughs> oh, well, let's just stick to kissing the cod. Can we? Come on. Uh, all right. Uh, the election in full swing. I think we're in day two right now. Before we get into platform and, and where we are, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, lots of chatter about mandatory vaccination. Uh, and, and many trying to make this a political wedge issue. Uh, whose candidates are vaccinated? Whose aren't? Who's saying they are? And, and, and trying to make a mountain out of this. Uh, also, uh, in regard to uh, federal employees uh, having met to have mandatory vaccination, uh, then the day later we're finding out, well, you really can't do that. Uh, so for those who don't, there'll be mandatory testing and, of course, the education process and all of that, very similar to what the Ontario provincial government is talking about. How do we balance out the whole mandatory vaccine discussion during an election campaign? Um, get another vaccine that brings a calming tranquility to the system and sit <laughs> back. Yeah, um, I, it, it's a hard one to answer because I, I saw bits of Trudeau's press conference earlier today where the media were coming back at him saying, well, isn't your policy sort of the same as the Conservatives and what's the difference? And uh, I think he demarcated it well on day one, and then O'Toole had to come out and uh, say that, well, no, here's what my policy is. So we had the conservatives on the run. They've pushed back. If you're an average person trying to figure it out, it is a tad bit confusing, to say the least. Um, I think where the liberals will probably try and hold the line is going to say, yes, of course there would have been exemptions, but we're starting with the premise that everybody has to get it unless there's a medical reason why they can't get it. Whereas the conservatives won't even go that far, they will they they will use moral suasion to say you can get it, uh, but they will substitute it with testing. And I think what they're trying to play, what Trudeau is trying to play off of, and what O'Toole is trying to avoid, 
getting hurt by is a large wave in the public public opinion wave, pardon the use of wave, uh, that says, you know, Canadians support mandatory vaccination. So they're hoping that the, it doesn't get too confusing. Prime Minister wants you to focus on mandatory, and Aaron O'Toole wants you to focus on choice because there's a cohort, a small cohort of voters he wants to keep in the Conservative tent who are libertarians and don't want somebody telling them they need to get a needle in their arm. Uh, we, uh, with the numbers, vaccination numbers in Ontario right now, over 81% with the first dose, over 73% with the second dose. Many have said these are just astronomical, uh, numbers. Uh, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, many were hoping we could just get 60%, uh, vaccinated. Let's just assume, and I just had this dis- uh, discussion earlier on, uh, with a health official, say 5% are anti-vaxxers, they're never getting vaccinated. Say there's 5% who have that legitimate reason both on a provincial or a federal level that either they can't take it medically or or what have you and provide that proof so that leaves a possible 90 percent of getting vaccinated uh like i said we're up over 82 now is it worth kicking this can around the way we are for the remaining five percent of the population well, it is if you're a politician trying to win votes. Uh, <laughs> so that's part one. Uh, part two, from a public health perspective, there's probably some merit in it. I mean, I've heard Dr. Moore, the Ontario chief of public health, say, you know, the more vaccinated, the better. I'd like to get it up around 85, or I don't know if Dr. Moore said 85, but I've certainly heard physicians in uh, Ontario say 85 at second dose to mitigate the impacts of the Delta virus. So we've been hearing that for, uh, I guess, a month or so now, Scott. So the public is kind of developing that expectation. So the envelope is going to get pushed here. Um, And again, I wish it were not uh, in the hothouse of the election campaign, but it is. So we all have to navigate our way through that. So I think there's a bit of a public health argument to be made, and there's certainly a political argument to be made. And I think O'Toole is hoping Trudeau will go too far, and Trudeau is hoping O'Toole will continue to have struggles justifying what it is he's trying to do. So that's where we are on this vaccine dance. It's no St. John's Waltz, let me tell you. (laughs) Oh, if it were. Uh, I snorted there. Gee whiz, Tim. I think the first person to make me do that. Um, uh, Like you had anything to do with it. Uh, I take full responsibility. Uh, I read an article. Mandatory snort vaccination. (laughs) Anyway, go ahead. Uh, I, I read an article earlier on in regard to the election and such, and those working in polling stations, those working uh, as part of the election, will not be required to have a mandatory vaccine or uh, in the position that they are, don't have to. I mean, again, h- how are we pretending this is mandatory when the people who are manning the polls that we're all going to vote at, it, it's not mandatory? Well, except, and this you're going to hear a lot of exceptions, yeah. so the those working at polling stations would be contract employees i think the again i don't want to interpret what the prime minister is saying but i can imagine that the government's explanation will be full-time federal employees so yeah again if you're an average person you're like doesn't the government run elections canada and they don't yeah. have to be vaccinated, so you're going to have confusion around all of this. I suspect the answer is the one I, I shaded for you there. And I think Elections Canada, Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, have said, you know, we're going to have all the PPE and all of that. So it may be like uh, going as it has been to get a, a COVID test. You're going to see an Elections Canada worker fully kitted out as physicians are and were. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe people won't see that as a major contradiction. But there's, this thing's littered with contradictions because there are always exceptions and exemptions to rules. All right, let's talk about uh, the policy angle of this. Uh, it, it Obviously, NDP and Conservatives were quick out with their full policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Liberals, very traditionally, just putting out dribs and drabs uh, at a time. I was talking to somebody yesterday in regard to this, and with the mail-in ballots, with uh, early voting and such, that, that uh, it, it's a different election now in a uh, global pandemic. Uh, is it wise to just filter this stuff out a bit at a time or is it better the way the opposition has and here's where we stand here's what we're going to the polls for well i think for the opposition it's wise because they're going to make the critique 
in the early days, it all seems to be early days, two days in, I guess, early hours. Uh, it still seems to be that the valid question that all all of the three major parties want is about securing your future. And Aaron O'Toole, I think, actually says that phrase. I want to, you know, this is about securing our future. So if you're the opposition and you're going to say the liberals suck at this and they suck at that and they spend money here or they don't spend enough money there, you got to be able to put out comparables as to what you would do. So the early drops of their policy platforms, though I believe neither the NDP nor the conservative platforms have been fully costed yet, that will have to come at some point, or maybe it won't, but normally it does, is part of that exercise to critique the liberals, to say, well, they're saying this, we would do this as opposed to empty criticism. So, And for the liberals, they can say, well, we've been in government, you know, they, they, Trudeau was hitting child care, I believe, in Markham today, and so they're picking things from their budget or picking things that they've already announced that they will just wrap up in a bow. So kind of makes sense in this world that opposition lays out the stuff first, and the liberals come later because they might want to save some gems for later on if, you know, they need to encourage voters to go further so the prime minister can try and get his, the majority he so covets. What stands out for you from the NDP platform? What seems to be making all the headlines is taxing the rich, the ultra wealthy. Yeah, and he, uh, Mr. Singh dropped that here in St. John's last week. Yeah, and, and again, so uh, the, you know, it, it's the, the contrast Mr. Singh wants to show. He's saying... We need an activist government, and somebody's got to pay for that activist government. And in his words, or his thinking, it may as well be the really rich people who, according to Mr. Singh, have done really well in the pandemic. So we're just going to claw back some of what they earned to pay for our programs. Whereas Mr. O'Toole, a lot of what he's dropped is around tax credits and innovation and such, very more Harper-esque platform. It's like... I don't want to stymie business, but I also want fiscal rectitude. I want you know people to have choice in what they do. So we've seen those contrasts, and then in the middle is is Mr. Trudeau. So not I'm, I have not been surprised, sorry listeners, by anything in the platforms yet. And there's some gimmicky stuff in the conservative one that I, as a small business owner, like, and that's what they want me to like. If you're a, an activist on the left who believes in pharmacare and you know, who believes that the wealthy earn too much, then you're going to like Mr. Singh's. And so there's something there for everybody who has an interest in uh, in, in the issues that matter to them. Uh, what about child care? You mentioned uh, the Prime Minister mm. earlier uh, today uh, making a big announcement on this, uh, reaffirming an announcement that they had already made. Uh, and it allows them, I guess, to to address the provinces and those that are into something like this, those that are not. Uh, we hear traditionally Alberta, Ontario, not interested in this. However, uh, Minister Lecce has pointed, has sort of, you know, there's an olive branch there, and, and it looks like they may work together. How big of an issue will this be in the election? Well, Justin Trudeau was trying to make it a bigger issue this morning because, of course, Mr. O'Toole has a different view of how child care should work. Um, he's leading the traditional conservative critique, and it's not an unfair one at this juncture that the liberals have promised, promised child care, and they've not delivered and don't believe them. We'll let parents have choice in child care back to the Harper model. Um, but th- this is going to be a key battleground, I think, um, yeah. particularly among voters that the liberals and conservatives want. Um Voters uh, who come from young, families with young children, many of them in in and around your area, in on you know in some of those bigger urban and suburban ridings in Ontario, for whom and British Columbia and Quebec, uh, child care, well, Quebec less so, where child care is a real issue, affordability is a real issue. So I suspect this this battle will will continue uh, and pick up. Trudeau tried to inoculate himself against the criticism that the Liberals never deliver on child care, and everybody cites the Red Book of John Crutcher in 20, 1993. So how did the inoculation work? Trudeau um, ran around the country, as you know, and did a number of these child care announcements with premiers before the election. He did one here in Newfoundland with Dr. Fury. He did one in Nova Scotia with Premier Rankin, one with uh, Mr. Legault, Premier Legault in, in Quebec. So uh he's he's trying to say the money's coming it's real and you need to elect us if if that's an issue that's important to you uh we haven't heard uh many times during election we don't know what is going to be the issue and in yeah. world politics which springs up obviously those terrible image hor- horrific images 
of the airport in Kabul yesterday. Will Afghanistan come into any of this at all, or is it just way into the weeds for most in what seems like an unsolvable problem? Well, I, I would, you're probably getting this, too. I mean, I've been home here in Newfoundland for two days, and we're a very active political province, as you know. And what I hear about first is Afghanistan. What I hear about second is the federal election and the normal Newfoundland and Labrador cynicism, and that's coming from liberals and conservatives. Ah, well, we all know why this election is happening, because the prime minister wants a majority. True or not, that's the cynicism that, that comes to the fore. I think the thing with Afghanistan is this, that um, there's a strong Canadian connection to Afghanistan. If these stories and that horrible image of people hanging onto that USAF jet mm-hmm. continue throughout the course of the election, that could present some problems, but all you know, conservatives and liberals have had a, a history where we're, have, have governed during our time of involvement in Afghanistan. So I don't know what precisely where blame would be affixed and what the blame yeah. would be. I know there's a lot of concern among veterans and former diplomats and others and uh, uh, Afghani, um, the Afghan dis- diaspora in Canada to get people out, and there's that's a general human rights um, concern. But do we still have these images uh, in, in 34 days or 33 days? I think that will determine where this may play or not play and how effectively the government of Canada deals with this. And God forbid that there aren't any more, more deaths because that could impact this too. How much of this takes away from the actual policy and campaign itself, which, you know, obviously will touch on energy, climate change, uh, and issues that are more important domestically? Well, I think our role in the world, right, is an important one. Uh, so it's being discussed in the frame of Afghanistan. The prime minister can try it, drive it into the frame of climate where he thinks he's, you know, on pretty good ground there. Uh, I uh, look. We're what are, as I say, we're in day two, early hours. So vaccines—that's an important issue related to COVID. It's probably more granular than it needs to be at the moment, but it is because people are trying to score political points. We're into childcare, which is social policy today. Important social policy. Uh, I, I think we're going to hit everything, uh, but we'll see where things will stick. I mean, they're all trying things out right now, right? Nobody's really made any big mistakes thus far. Um, I think when the first big mistake gets made, you might see a focus on whatever that area is. They're skirmishing now around trying to find that mistake or cause their opponent to make a mistake. Are you expecting a high or low voter turnout? Are people uh, are people interested in what's going on and in what the leaders are saying on a daily basis now? Too early to tell on that one. I, look, I think once we get past Labor Day, better to a- able to answer that question. Honestly, it's like people. I, I I'm here trying to spend a couple of days with my mother. I'm not overly focused on the campaign. That's sort of important to me because for a number of very different things that I'm doing, and other people are like that, trying to get in the last three weeks of summer or two and a half weeks of summer before, you know, potentially another iron curtain of lockdowns come. Let's hope that's not the case. So I I think by the time we get to Labor Day, by the time those debates come, because they come that week, right, the 8th and the 9th of the French and English debate, respectively, or the 9th and the 10th, no, it's 8th and 9th, and then uh, I, I think that will help determine in, in engagement and interest. And the wild card in all of this got to is uh, mail-in ballots. And I believe I guess mm-hmm. yesterday I saw you have to do register and get your mail-in ballot back by September 14th. So does that affect mail-in balloting, which may impact turnout? If you leave it right to the end, you mightn't be able to vote even though you want to vote. So how will all that work? That also will affect turnout. How important will the debates be this time out? Uh, many remember Andrew Scheer and, you know, coming right out of the blocks at one of them and just trashing Trudeau and calling him this, that, and the other. Uh, will we see a challenging debate? Will there be anything there that might set the tone? Well, don't forget, last time before all that, we had all the blackface stuff. So that yeah. allowed allowed for a real character challenge from the opposition leaders on on Mr. Trudeau. I think, again, if we're tracking where we are right now in the polling numbers, I think Mr. Singh is going to want to have a good debate performance. He, speaking of wild cards, has the potential to be a wild card here. You know, I mean, our abacus data polling, lots of polling have, have Mr. Singh 
as the most popular leader among yeah. all of them. But his party is his party's in the low twenties um, or at twenty. So how does he? You know, that'll be the biggest public-facing event. If he's in that space, he's going to want to use it uh, well to see if he can move people his way. Mister O'Toole is going to want to use that space well. So it's important for leaders. Uh, those two leaders in particular, Mr. Trudeau's going to want to survive anyway, regardless of the rhythm of the campaign. They're going to want to use that as a showcase piece to either uh, inflames, in, inflate some momentum, uh, stymie the momentum of others, deal with mistakes that they've made. So it, it just by its natural occurrence has the uh, potential to be important. Uh, do you ever just whip down a couple of doors uh, down and just have a pint with uh, Mr. Doyle? Uh, I, I see him every now and then. By the way, you love this. It seems like a shameless Ontario name-dropping thing, so I hope the noobs aren't listening to me now. Our other next-door neighbor right across the garden, and he's a beekeeper, by the way, is Alan Hocko from Republic of Doyle. We're, we're surrounded by Allens. We're surrounded wow. by the islands on this island. You must be like in the uh, well-heeled version of. No, 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 no. We're, this is, we're all average people here, Scott. I mean, I was know, wondering how like you were going hammer. to come back just to like that. Hammer. All right, Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. Always a pleasure, Tim. Thanks so much. Uh, be well. Take care, Scott. Bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.